we're going to hear a little bit today, not so much as what he's done, because we're all aware, very much aware of his illustrious career from Eskom, Billiton, bringing it over here to London, merging it with BHP to form the greatest mining company in the world, and then building Extrata from scratch. So that's the what. But what we're interested in today is the why and the how and the person behind all of this. Over to you, may I start with the first question that I have, which was your original degree at Rhodes was actually accounting and commerce. Quite interested to know where you were bitten by the mining bug. Getting into mining was simply by accident. I trained as an, after university, I trained as an accountant. I joined Eskom after having been offered a job by Anglo-American, but when they sort of were quite pedantic about the size of my office, given my status, I thought, well, a company which is focusing on office size, maybe I should go somewhere else. And, and I joined Eskom when John Marie and Ian McRae were, were trying to revitalize that organization, and it was an exciting time to be there. And one of the, the things that we did was, because we had excess capacity, was to incentivize general mining to build a hillside smelter, the aluminium smelter. And I then got to know Brian Gilbertson, who I think was, you know, one of the great corporate entrepreneurs of the mining industry. And at a time when general mining was unbundling their non-mining interests, I was I was leaving Eskom, having been passed over as chief executive. So you know, I sort of packed my bags and decided I was going to move on. And that that became a public story. And Brian approached me because he was looking for a new chief financial officer for the the now Focus Mining Group. And that's how I got into mining. So it was really happenstance. It wasn't, it wasn't planned at all. And in the same way, I had a steep learning curve when I joined Eskom. I had a massively steep learning curve when I joined uh, General Mining, which ultimately became Billiton. Yeah, often the way careers go, isn't it? Uh, not, mm-hmm. in the, not in a straight line. The young ones always ask us, you know, how do we get to where you are? And actually, it's very random. Extrata was where you really brought two kinds of skills to the fore, your financial skills and tapping financial markets and getting people behind you in the markets. But also when I dealt with you at Extrata, an extremely good grasp of the operations and the structure of the group. I think Extrata was one of the first to decentralize and and give people their, their reign down there. What skills do you think helped you in this success that you had there? What skills should people out there in the audience be trying to develop? I'm not so sure that it's skills, but sort of almost an attitude of mind. I went to school on, on both the good and bad management practices that I saw at Eskom, that I saw at General Mining and other companies that I observed, and trying in my own mind, trying to work out what I thought works well in, in a dynamic corporate environment. And it goes hand in hand with the fact that I'm a natural delegator. So I'm quite keen to delegate others to do sort of work which I don't need to do. And so if you're a national delegator like me, and I'm not lazy but a delegator, it goes well with this whole concept of pushing responsibility, accountability, and decision-making powers down to the people who have the most information and the most timeless information in which they can make the, those decisions. And so my, my, my sort of underlying philosophy was the people who are closest to the action are going to make the best decisions because they have the best information and they have that information in, in, in the best possible time. And therefore, you shouldn't actually second-guess them. So that was the first thing, is, it, it's, is a 
to delegate as much as possible down to people who actually had the input. Uh, and the other thing was to find um, the smartest people you possibly could to, to work for you and, and not to fear people who were actually smarter than you. And I think that if you can put those things together, you create um, yeah, a very powerful combination of, uh, of people willing to take decisions, willing to take responsibility, but also having the smarts to do that. Um, and that's really what I try to do. Um, and I, I sort of held the view in Extrata that it didn't matter how big Extrata became, we never had to have a big head office. The, the head office's role was not to second guess operational management. And so we kept the head office small as we grew Extrata because of this, uh, this philosophy. And, and if you were running it now, do you think <clears throat> the increased risks around things like ESG, uh, cyber security, all of those, do you think uh, the, the move to centralization would have impacted you or would you think you could still work that way? No, I would stick to where I was. I mean, I, I think the issues around uh, around cybersecurity are are, are are issues which can be managed through um, a corporate philosophy and policy. But still, uh, you know, how those are implemented can be delegated to uh, to individual businesses. And in particular, around ESG, I think ESG in fact lends itself to uh, to strong delegation down to where uh, the operations are. Um, and I suggest actually that you know one of the challenges one of the leading mining houses in in, in, in the UK has just had in Australia emphasizes that point that it is best left to empower people at the operations to manage these issues. They understand the communities, they understand the environment, and provided that there's a strong sense of the policy agenda of the of, of the of the corporate entity, people should be able to implement effective ways of achieving that agenda. Uh, in, their, in their own particular circumstances. You're absolutely right. I, I saw it when it did used to work that way many years ago, so spot on, yes. Looking back at your career, uh, could you share with us what was possibly the highest point and uh, what was the lowest point? Well, I've had a couple of low points in my career, and so let's start with those. I mean, I'm a person, I guess you can characterize my career, my career in many respects as sort of unrequited ambition. So I thought I should have been made a partner at uh, the order firm I was, I was working at, and they decided I was too young, and that's why I decided to move. I joined Eskom, became chief financial officer at a very young age, and that certainly was a very high point. But in my mid-30s, was passed over as chief executive uh, when I thought I should be made. I then joined Billiton, and that was a fantastic seven years of my life because I learned a lot and we did a lot, and culminating in the merger with, with BHP, which um, I, was, I was integrally involved with. But during Extrata was, uh, and the building of Extrata you know, in the first uh, sort of eight years of, of, of that was you know, just one successful year after another where where not only our plans came together, but the things that we, we acquired sort of gelled so well. And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was tremendous, you know, when, when that happened. And, and the team that we built and, and, and the, the working environment we had in Extrata, where I, I can say that I think that people really enjoyed coming to work every day um, uh, because of the, you know, the challenge which they had and the success which they could see we were achieving. But the lowest point, without a doubt, was the um, you know was the ultimate sort of merger with takeover by Glencore Extractor, which was without doubt the lowest point of my career. Everything that I built up 
uh, essentially was, uh, was was snatched away. And that was a tough thing to actually have to deal with. So that was the lowest point without a doubt. If you look back over the highs and the lows and the experiences, is there anything you might have done differently? I know you said on decentralization you certainly wouldn't have. Uh, is there anything that you think you might have done differently? Yeah, one of the biggest challenges that you have if you've had years of success is, is arrogance. Um, and that's the biggest issue that challenges, I think, every, every senior executive, this arrogance of success, that you actually think that not only you're convinced that everything you're doing is right, but you're convinced that people observe you think that you're right as well. And so I, I made judgment calls about my position in the marketplace and certainly in relation to investors where I thought they would back my judgment irrespective. And as it turned out, they didn't. I mean, they disagreed with me on the incentive plans, for instance, I want to put in place to secure uh, the people in Extrata that they would stay around post the merger. Um, and when the, the tensions rose with, with, with Glencore, um, I thought they would back me and they actually did not. And I should have recognised those signals in the wind and they certainly were there to recognise and I just didn't. And so I think the biggest thing that one has to guard against is this, is this issue which I call the arrogance of success, that, that you, you sort of think that it's always, your perspective is always right. And I could have been much more sensitive to, to where investors are. Even if I disagreed with them, I should nevertheless be more sensitive to where they were because ultimately they were the providers of capital and they were the owners of the business. And yeah, so if I could do things again, certainly I would. Uh, I would certainly think seriously about how I would approach my ongoing relationship with the investor community, and you know, just to recognise that you're never too old to learn things, and um, and you know, life continues to be a learning experience. Yeah, I mean, I think your comment on the danger and the arrogance, I suppose, of success is particularly noticeable when people have been entrepreneurs and used their own money and almost gone against people's uh, naysaying and succeeded, then they are very hard to get to listen to to you. You know, once you've succeeded, it's harder to listen to people. Well, that's very, uh, very self-deprecating of you. Let's move on just to what I think as a South African-born person, I have the highest awe for the fact that you have received uh, the honour of Knight's Bachelor from in the Queen's Honours List. The first person I knew who was awarded a KB was a very down-to-earth Derby industrialist. And we went into the analyst meeting and we said, do we have to call you sir? It was really hard to, <laughs> to, to see him as a sir. But he, he again, he told a lovely self-deprecating story and he said, you get this letter and it says, we are minded to offer you this award, and if we did, would you be minded to accept it? And you have to tick yes or no. And he duly ticked the box and sent it off and then spent many sleepless nights wondering whether he ticked the right box or not. <laughs> so how did you feel when you were awarded this uh, high honour? As somebody from all the way back in Port Elizabeth, yeah. I actually was somewhat overwhelmed because it was completely unexpected. Um, I had no inkling that this was going to happen and it was done um, at the behest of, of the Prime Minister and it suddenly arrived out of the blue. And uh, my initial reaction is it was actually not to accept it because I didn't think I had done anything to deserve it. 
And I remember speaking to a friend of mine who was then chairman of the Conservative Party, Andrew Feldman, and said, you know, I've got this thing and I don't want to accept it. And he, he sort of berated me on the phone saying, don't be mad, you know, you can't turn these things down. So I really was quite overwhelmed by it. And, you know, like I guess, like everybody gets these things, quite proud that, uh, that I got this recognition. But I then, I, at the time, really didn't think that I'd done anything extra special. And so it was a complete, uh, it was a complete ball time of the blue. But nevertheless, you know, it's, it was a great experience, uh, you know, to go and, um, you know, we, I got, uh, was knighted at, at Windsor Castle. Uh, and just the whole experience was, uh, was very, very special. And do people treat you differently now? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> not even your wife. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> My wife said that she was a lady before I was knighted. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. That's that's some really good insights into your particular career. Could we move on to the biggest stage now? Again, to the cricket illusion. When you left Glencore, uh, you you have been somewhat on the outside, I call it in the stands, whether it's at Lords or the Oval, uh, watching the last few years of developments in the mining sector. It's been a turbulent time. It's never very dull in the sector anyway. And I wondered if you could give us your views on what the majors have done well while you've been looking on and not participating and what they've done badly. And please feel free to talk generically or else play the man, not the ball. Tell you what the majors have done. A pretty traumatic few years is address their fundamental sort of cost base. And I think all of them have done fantastic work in, in really cutting out significant costs of the operational base and making themselves more resilient as a result of doing that. And I've seen some organisations which have really been in pretty precarious positions, and, and you would have thought at points in time that they had nowhere to go, essentially because of this very focused thing on getting the operations done and, and essentially concentrating on, on the stuff which you can actually do as opposed to having big ambitions, but nevertheless concentrating on seeing small, seeing incrementally every day how they can improve things, have actually come through and, and set themselves in a very, very credible position. The Anglo-American, I think, is a great example of that that a few years ago Anglo-American was in a really bad shape and in a very bad position, whereas today I think is an entirely different position. And this strong concentration that the team there, led by Mark, has had, I think has, has paid enormous dividends, to use them as just one example. So I think that has been a very, very good exercise of focused management by the industry. And as a result of that, and because of the, the retardation of the investment programs, and we'll come, come back to that now, they've been able to return significant amounts of cash in the form of dividends and capital returns to shareholders. And therefore, they've, they've sort of satisfied the needs of the investment community. But therein lies, I think, their biggest challenge going forward, that they have not, and boards of directors and management teams generally have not focused on this very simple proposition that mining companies, every single day they take something out of the ground, that value disappears forever. And unless you do something to replace that value, you are going to end up withering and dying. And we have many good examples in South Africa of grand and great mining companies. Grand Mines, for instance, for many years ago, those who are old enough will remember, being a great example. 
It was once the biggest mining company in the world. That doesn't exist because of a lack of investment in rebuilding and recreating value. And some value creation can come about by lowering your cost base. So more grain becomes payable, more ore becomes payable in the ground. But most of it comes from ongoing investments and increasing your optionality. So the ability to create value depends on the options that you have within your portfolio and to recognize when those options should be tackled. And I fear that this very focused approach on returning cash to shareholders in the form of dividends and capital returns has not, in fact, taken into account the need to sufficiently reinvest. And so they have not created new optionality. And for most mining companies, that means that unless they do something, their NPV going forward is just simply going to show a declining trend. And ultimately, that will reflect itself in the share price because present value of the future cash flows ultimately will decline. And I think that's the challenge. And the challenge is there because for them to change that course of action, they need to convince investors that that's something that they should be doing. And I just think that the education, the comms, the almost the propaganda in a, in a very positive sense, the mining executives have to engage with the investors on a continuous basis have been allowed to die away. And so there is quite a gulf now between the imperatives of mining companies to continue to create and generate value and the long-term investments that are required for that versus the expectations of the investor community. And I think there is a big challenge there and a big gulf that needs to be bridged. So I totally agree with you. There is a fear at the board level often now in the big groups of having been accused of excess capital spend in the past and this complete focus now on no capital spend. But there has also been the cutback when pairing costs on things like ESG, which is why we've seen some of the disasters that have resulted, not least in some of your old operations. So do you think part of the conversation with investors also has to be, if you want us to do proper ESG, there is also a cost there and there is less uh, coming through in the dividend? The answer to that is yes. I mean, you have the urgent need to cut costs clearly the things that you cut generally are things which are not really good for you in the long term. I mean, in the old days, the easiest way of actually improving your C1 cash costs was to cut back on development, because you don't actually see the negative aspects of cutting back on development until maybe a year or so later, but you can have an immediate impact on costs. If you only invest in environmental impact and safety and stuff like that, again, it comes back to bite you, you know, at some time in the future. So invariably, those things require investment. But you know, I've generally found that improvements in productivity and output go hand in hand with investments in these areas. So I don't think that because you have the appropriate amount of energy and investment in things like ESG and ensuring that your maintenance regimes are right and your development is right, actually is an increase in costs with no benefit. I actually think that it goes hand in hand with improvements in productivity, and I think you find you get those back. So I don't actually think ultimately there's a trade-off. I think you need to make the case for why you do it, but I think you gain almost immediate benefit aside from the direct aspects of ensuring you know you're not creating the risk by underinvesting in those areas. But I think that the the bigger challenge is that that as you say, mining companies have always been accused of excessive investment and destroying capital. 
And it is true that that is what's happened over many years. When you and I were starting out in this sector, you as an analyst and me as a young executive, we were right in the heart of the era where mining companies controlled and dominated by engineers and, and geologists were spending huge amounts of money, which was never, ever going to be returned. And there certainly wasn't ever going to be a return on that investment. And then we go through cycles and then sort of the accountants take over and they focus on return on investment and, and things get better. But as demand goes up and commodity prices go up and exceed long-run long average prices, so people march into investing in capacity. And invariably, the people that get there at the back end of that investment ultimately spend most amount of money, get the least return and end up in a difficult situation. So that is all true. But... It is very, very difficult for mining executives to calibrate those decisions with precision that investors seem to want. I mean, you are making decisions about investments which have a 20, 25-year life. And the smallest change over that period in a variable, whether it's your assumption on what your long-run price is going to be or ultimately what elements contained within your C1 cash costs are, changes your returns dramatically. And so, and, and it's very difficult once you've actually engaged in that investment to actually step back and say, okay, well, I'll scale it down. And I'll either slow down the investment or alternatively, if I'm in operation, I'll withdraw operations and not send as much product to the marketplace. Yeah, that's just not the way things work. And so you, you are locked into an industry which is not able to calibrate with sufficient precision. So the nature of the investor who invests in the mining industry has to recognize and respect cyclicality and has to recognize and respect the front-end loaded nature of your, your capex. And they should be interrogating not only the market decision as to why the investment was made, but to interrogate the resilience of those investments and the resilience of the balance sheet which supports those investments. So I think they should be less concerned about we built something for some exogenous reason, the market falls away. So we have a period where we have low prices, lower than we thought we had, because cycles will change and you will have periods where you have much higher prices at some point in the future. What you have to test is, okay, are you resilient enough as an organization to handle that investment and live with that investment through a period of unexpected low prices? And it's that question, that, that sense of resilience which the market doesn't test and management teams don't actually approach that well, and that's the area which I think management teams need to educate investors about, and investors need to interrogate management teams on their capacity to, to build in resilience. Then, you know, then you have to talk about if they are going to be building something, why has the industry so badly managed builds in, 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 in the last few years? Why have we had these massive overruns? And I suspect a lot of the reasons go to quite simple issues that we start these projects too soon in the sort of the development cycle. In other words, we start them without completing the engineering. So we have, we have engineering completed, certainly, but there's not enough, the engineering is not sufficiently complete. So by the time we have completed the engineering, we have to gerrymander the projects and change them, and that adds enormous cost to them. And the other thing is that I don't think that the industry understands fully once the project is started on the ground, how to actually manage the sequencing of projects on the ground. Once people are on the ground, that cost is there every single hour of the day that they're sitting there. And if you have one thing which steps out of sequence, so you can't productively deploy part of your construction force 
then not only do you go over time, but you go massively over cost. And it's those two areas which I think we need to get right if we're going to successfully build things in a way where we don't end up with these massive overruns on time and, and on costs, which can never be recovered. Very spot on. We've touched quite a bit on the perception of the mining sector, how they manage it or how they badly manage it. Millennials, young people coming into the industry, there's a real, there seems to be a real issue around the image of mining to attract younger people, brighter people who want to go into tech or footballing or something else other than mining. I, <laughs> I've got a friend who's a mining banker, and he said after the global financial crisis, his children were very embarrassed to admit that their father was a banker. And increasingly now, with all the bad coverage that the mining companies are getting, they're even more embarrassed to admit that their father is a mining banker. So how do you think you we attract the young, the bright into the mining industry, given the alternatives and, and sometimes the bad wreck that uh, the mining sector gets? I mean, this is an issue which has, which has been there with us for a long time. I mean, you know, when I started out in the industry and we entered into period, you know, quite a protracted period where, um, where commodity prices were declining in real terms every year by one and a half to two percent and essentially the industry was in the doldrums and, and most mining companies destroyed capital every year. And it was not an industry that people wanted to get in. And telecoms was, uh, you know, was in, in its uh, in its apogee, and uh, and so you know all, all the brightest engineers were going into into that sector. And it was a real it was a real struggle. Then we had the, uh, the resurgence of the of the industry with the uh, with the industrialization of China, and and the uh, the period from two thousand to two thousand and eight was was a golden period in the sector, and you, you could employ anybody you like, and you had the brightest brains wanting to be with you because so much was happy, actually happening. Um, and as you say, post two thousand eight, we've never really recovered from that. It was this, the industry has never recovered, recovered from two thousand. It wasn't only just the financial services sector that was impacted, and then we've had the rise of, 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 of as you said. Of technology-focused industries, where we should not only attract these massive multiples and, and, and value and, and all this cash, but you know, is a magnet for the brightest, the brightest brains. And those are difficult things to manage. And you overlay that the perception of this old world economy, um, which um, which which essentially is an affront to the moral position of many young people today. I mean, I, I find my children. Have uh, have I think a much greater social awareness, social consciousness than perhaps I had when I was their age, and are much more focused in on on creating public good in society as opposed to simply furthering the amount of money they can make and, and, and things like that, which I think is is a very noble thing. So how do you actually stack up an industry which has, as you imply, a bad rep? Well, I, I think that the industry is 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 obviously unfairly challenged because. The mining industry in particular has done magnificent things in the context of communal community investments, supporting communities that it operates in, being good corporate citizens, being very mindful of its environment impact, improving its environmental rehabilitation records, working with, you know, with organizations to ensure that you know, they can do things in, in a very constructive way. So I think that 
as, as an industry, we actually have quite a good story to tell in terms of the way we've responded to things, but we tell that story terribly badly or we don't tell it at all. I mean, I'm just mindful of this thing, that we are absolutely vital for the continuation of civilization and society as we know it. Everything that, 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 that is used uh, to, to create a functioning world you know, is, is, has its source in the commodities and the resources that we actually extract and refine and, and put into the marketplace. You know, whether it's a toothbrush that you use or the toothpaste you use to, to brush our teeth, to the, the motor car that we've, we've driven in, to the pencil that we've used to write, uh, to the, you know, the, the lights we get, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to illuminate um, our, our workplace, etc. There's nothing in our lives which is not, in fact, sourced from the products that we bring from the ground. So we are absolutely, by the play a vital and, in fact, a noble part in the furthering of society. And, and the industry needs to get itself into a position where it can, with pride, I think, talk about that value that it actually contributes. And that value has gone to the building of many, many countries and societies from very low bases in terms of, 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 of wealth and the spread of wealth to relatively high saturation of wealth across society. And with that, we have invested directly in communities. We have grown community propositions and created sustainability so that those communities have a life after our, our after even the operations that we that we own, in fact, closed down. So I think there's a big story to be told. The story is not told at all. But the vitality of resources to the to the the growth of mankind is absolutely fundamental, and that's where we need to concentrate, and that's where we need to demonstrate where we add the value. And I think that we do not need to be ashamed of how we manage our environmental impact as an industry. I mean, certain companies should be ashamed, but we as an industry do not need to be ashamed of how we're tackling this. And I think that there is a great story to be told, and I think we need to get out and tell it. Take back the message. We could go on all morning, but I know that other people want to have their say as well. So you talked about the lights that come on as one of the things that the mining sector does. Uh, in South Africa, we know they don't always come on. And the CEO of Eskom is talking later this afternoon. So hopefully Joburg's uh, no power outages today. But could you just to wrap up, make any thoughts that you have on what Eskom and government should be doing to give power, reliable power and affordable power to the people and the mines of South Africa? Eskom has a mountain to climb. Um, uh, uh, as an organization, its balance sheet is it's actually insolvent. Its, its assets are overvalued and uh, it has a massive amount of debt. So it, it needs to actually resolve its balance sheet. And in my view, that can only come through an injection of equity by the shareholder and, uh, and a packaging of, of, of that debt in a, in a way which uh, relieves the, uh, the debt servicing burden on Eskom. So, Restoring the balance sheet is absolutely fundamental. If you don't do that, Eskom does not have the financial resilience to operate. Secondly, it has to secure its cash inflows from its debtors. So it has to deal with the issue of non-payment by, by municipalities and, and address that head on. And in fact, that is a political issue which the government has to help them with, but it cannot sustain hundreds of millions of, of rands every month not being paid. So it has to address those cash inflows. So those are, the, those are those two broad issues. And now we come to, I think, two, two issues. First of all, that there is, an, oh, there is an absolute shortage of capacity within South Africa 
for two reasons. One is ESCOM's existing capacity does not operate to nameplate capacity because of maintenance protocols which have not been followed for many, many years. And so you have these unplanned outages. And in fact, because there's not enough capacity, there isn't enough spinning reserve to take uh, units out on planned maintenance on a sufficiently rigorous basis for you to build it up. So they have to find a way of actually creating sufficient reserve margin to do that. And the only way they can do that is by getting others to add capacity into the system. And the way the, the others, I mean, companies who can bring on their own generation. And that requires the regulations to be eased dramatically and lifted, in fact, to allow small-scale generation from, from, from companies who have the capacity to do it to either service their own facilities or sell power into the grid. And, uh, and that requires the, the regulatory authorities to dramatically lift regulation and, and make that easier to do. And they can do that almost overnight, but have not done that yet. And that could bring in a significant amount of megawatts into the system quite soon. The second thing is that ESCOM's two great power station projects are failures. I don't know if they ever will work to NAMCAD capacity. But if ESCOM is to think about new uh, capacity builds, it has to do it on a small modular basis. In other words, not have bespoke power stations. They actually have to buy uh, in, uh, in, in units where it actually can build this up on a modular basis. And because it does not have the engineering and project management expertise any longer to actually manage large scale projects. And then I think it actually has to address its operational protocols through the reintroduction of skills. And, and I actually think that there are there are a lot of people around the world, people who used to work for Eskom in the past, people at supplies to Eskom, who we should bring in a almost a sort of a project team with a defined sort of 18 months, two-year life, which can be helicoptered into operations to help sit with existing the existing employees of Eskom and help nurture these operating units, whether it's the boilers, the, the turbines, back into a position where they can operate at more or less uh, the reliabilities that uh, we used to have in Eskom in the old days, certainly in excess of 90%. And that requires that requires a lot of skills. I mean, running big electricity utilities is an art even more than a science. And I think from that point of view, that requires a real focus of skills. And, and there are skills out there, but you should actually try and bring them into a very defined period of time, working with our people, working with people in Eskom to build it up. And I think the the other aspect, and I'm, and I'm not, you know, is is the whole issue of securing stable, well priced primary energy because the primary energy contracts that they have certainly on coal are, I think, a mess and they need to be resolved. And the final element is the management structure within Eskom, and I last looked at it was not fit for purpose. So they had this bottleneck of middle and senior management, which I think need to be paired away dramatically. And again, try and focus accountability and responsibility down at distribution level, at power plant level, and to make sure that those people understand that it's their job to get these things running in an effective way. So there is a big management response required at ESCO, as well as a technical response. And overlay that is, is, is building resilience back into the value sheet. Wow. Okay. So no pressure on the, the CEO of ESCO. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to say, Vianna, before I leave that point. Yes. The thing that, that I feel frustrated about with Eskom is that it's a problem that never had to happen and it's a problem that can be resolved. You know, there's some things in South Africa which will take generations to deal with. For instance, the educational deficit. 
you know, will take generations to, to, to deal with. And even perhaps a healthcare deficit will take generations to deal with. But ESCOM is not a generational issue. It can be fixed within a period of, of a few years if you have the right focus, the right support for the chief executive of, of ESCOM, and in fact, if government step back and allow the teams to do the work that they need to do in an effective way. It can be done. It didn't have to be this way, and it certainly can be fixed within a reasonable period of time.